more of a clear, clear picture, Lord, of who we truly are, Lord, not as um, we want to see you, Lord, as you truly are, not as we as we make you to be, Lord, as we think you are, Lord, but um, mold us and shape us more into the image of Jesus is our prayer this morning. Lord, we give you the praise in this service. We just thank you for your presence here this morning, in Jesus' name. Well, good morning, family church. Good morning. We have the incredible privilege of Helen Trevigen uh, joining us this morning. He's the senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church over on the East Coast, and he's actually visited our church a number of times in past years. Uh, during the last couple of conferences Pastor Terry and I have attended, we've had an opportunity just to be able to talk with him and share with him some of the exciting things that God is doing here at the church. In the last conference that we were at, um, I was able to talk with him and and just tell him some of the things going on, and, and he extended kind of an invitation to us and said he was excited about those things and kind of said um, that he would be happy to help in whatever way he could. So I took that quite literally and uh, invited him to come preach for us, and he is willing to do so even on vacation. And so that is um, just a testimony to his love and devotion to the Word of God and to the Lord and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Tullin, we are very blessed to have you here. Thank you for doing this, especially on vacation. And we're excited about what God has done in your life and through your life and the message that you have for us. So if you would welcome Tullin to visit. Well, all of that is true. Uh, I am on vacation. Uh, We come here, in fact, believe it or not, I have been coming to Marco Island for vacation since I was 11, which was 31 years ago. 31 years ago is when I first came to Marco. I'm 42 now if you don't want to have to do the math. Um, And uh, this was the church that we would come to every Sunday in the month of July. So I have actually been coming to this church longer than some of you have been alive, believe it or not. Uh, So I have credibility here, all right? Um, It really is an honor to be here, and uh, we have been uh, coming here, as I said, for many, many years, and Marco is really a home away from home, and this church really feels like a home away from home. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, Let me focus your attention this morning, if you have a Bible, to Luke chapter 4, Luke 4, and I was getting briefed before the service on the goings-on here at the church and even some of the transitions and changes that have taken place, and let me just encourage you, let me encourage you. Um, that any ministry, any church that is built on not just the preaching of God's Word in general, but the preaching of Christ as the hero of the story in and through God's Word, the preaching of the gospel is a ministry that will flourish, is a church that will flourish. God honors the preaching of His Word, and He honors churches that look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, just be encouraged. We went through a very, very, very difficult time back in 2009 when 
we were going through a major transition at Coral Ridge, and we are now five and a half years on the other side of that transition. And there were many, many, many times in that first year, in that first two years, that I wanted to throw in the towel and quit. I I could think of a thousand things that would be easier to do with my life than to do what I was doing. And God sustained us, and God gave us the grace that we needed to press on and strain forward. And I can now bear a happy testimony that on the other side of those changes and that transition, God is, God is doing a remarkable thing um, on the southeast coast of Florida. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that the same remarkable thing he is doing on the southeast coast of Florida, he is doing and will continue to do on the southwest coast of Florida. So just take heart, be encouraged. Um, I mean, God's word does not return void. And uh, know that you are all great sinners, <laughs> but Christ is a great savior. And when we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, um, God does great things. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, this is that famous account where Jesus goes home to Nazareth as an adult, and he goes into the synagogue, and they give him the scroll to read, and he reads from that famous portion in Isaiah, and some people liked it, and others hated it. So what it says, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, and he came, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray together. With one voice, O God, we pray, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. You have gathered us this morning to remind us of who we are, great sinners, but that's not your last word. That is your first word to us, but your final word to us is that Christ is a great Savior, and that Jesus has come for train wrecks, because train wrecks are all that there are. And so I pray, O God, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and that as a result of seeing Christ and his finished work on our behalf, we would leave here this morning feeling lighter, knowing that Jesus has come to set the captives free, and therefore we are liberated, liberated, set free 
from the pressure to make it on our own. And so I pray that you would pound that good word down deep into our hearts and down deep into our minds and that we would leave here marveling at Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It may seem a little bit strange for me to say this given the fact that I am currently on vacation, but everybody I talk to is exhausted. Everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they are old or young, whether they have grown kids or small kids or no kids, married or single, rich or poor. It doesn't matter. I've been a pastor now for almost 20 years, and I can look back at the course of my ministry and recall the conversations I've had with people for many, many years, and I can now say that there is not one person that I have talked to in all of those years who isn't at some level exhausted. We are broken people living in a broken world with other broken people, and that means that we are tired, we're weary, we're heavy laden. In fact, Jesus Jesus assumed that we were weary and heavy laden because he extends this amazing invitation that anyone who is weary and heavy laden can come to him and find rest. And implicit in that invitation is this idea that we are all weary and heavy laden people. People are exhausted emotionally. I talk to emotionally exhausted people. I talk to physically exhausted people. I talk to relationally exhausted people. Because we're broken people living in a broken world with other broken people, even our best relationships have an undercurrent of tension and frustration. We know that things, even in our best relationships, aren't perfect. They're imperfect, and so we get frustrated. We feel insecure. So I talk to people who are relationally exhausted. I also talk to people who are spiritually exhausted. And there may be no institution in the world that spiritually exhausts people more so than the church. Because Jesus, as I said, extends this amazing invitation, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, the church should be the one place in all of society where weary and heavy laden people can come and find rest and hear those glorious words, it is finished, week after week after week after week. But that's too often not what they find. What they find are to-do lists. They're on the receiving end of a checklist version of the Christian faith so that those three words that are intended by God to set us free, it is finished, are now replaced by those grand American words, just do it. And so weary and heavy laden people don't oftentimes find rest when they come to church. And as a result, there are lots of people who come to church week in and week out who are spiritually exhausted. So everyone I talk to is exhausted at some level Everyone I talk to is exhausted. And there's a good reason for that. Because if you think about it, life is long on law and short on grace. Let me tell you what I mean. The demands in your life, in my life, never stop. Failures pile up. Fear sets in. I mean, think about it. Life requires many things from us. A successful career, a stable marriage, uh, well-behaved and emotionally adjusted children, a good reputation, a certain quality of life. We all feel that pressure. We do our best to do better, to do more, and to do now. I mean, the pressure to take care of yourself and make it happen by working harder and working smarter just flat wears us out. We're tired. We feel the pressure of life. 
and we're tired, we're, we're weary, we're trying to keep it all together. I mean, we live with long lists of things to accomplish and people to please and situations to manage. I mean, anyone living inside the stress and the strain and the uncertainty of daily life knows by instinct and hard experience that the weight of life is heavy. And so, we are all, whether you realize it or not, we are all in need of relief. God saved me at 21 years old. I was born into a remarkable Christian home, the middle of seven children, believe it or not. People ask me sometimes why I stopped at three children, given the fact that I came from a big family of seven, and I tell them it was because I came from a big family of seven that I stopped at three. I remember my dad and my mom taking all of us kids to McDonald's after church for lunch on the way home, and the bill was over $100 for McDonald's. Um, it was constant pandemonium and chaos, and so we, we, my wife and I, Kim, who's in the back with my daughter Jenna, stopped at three. Um, but I grew up in this remarkable Christian home. I was taught the Bible from as early as I can remember, and I was taught to pray, and I can remember having family devotions, and I grew up in the kind of home where the flavor of Christianity that was expressed was was not legalistic or oppressive. It was free and fun, and it was hospitable and warm and inviting. But at 16 years old, for whatever reason, I decided to throw it all away. And I had, caused, I had been causing for a number of years so much disruption inside my home that my parents, who had tried everything, said, if you're going to continue living this way, you cannot live this way under our roof. And so they kicked me out of the house at 16 years old. I was literally escorted off of our property by the police, dropped out of high school, and began living in a manner that I thought would satisfy. And the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And I looked for meaning and purpose and satisfaction and all of those things, happiness, joy, peace under every worldly rock and behind every worldly tree. And at 21 years old, I came to the end of myself. It wasn't one particular event or one particular circumstance. It was just this culminating sense that there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. There's got to be more to who I am than what this world is telling me. And so the hound of heaven graciously tracked me down, magnificently defeated me, raised me from death to life, and I haven't been the same since. God saved me at 21 years old. But I can remember when I first became a Christian that I was so bound and determined not to go back to what I used to be that I set up all kinds of guardrails and rules and regulations to protect me from going back to what I was. And it wasn't long into my new Christian life that I became absolutely exhausted. I became, number one, very difficult to live with because not only was I imposing these strict rules and regulations on me, I was imposing these strict rules and regulations on the people around me. And so not only was I getting increasingly tired, but I was increasingly tiring the other people out in my life. And as I've grown up a little bit now, and I've reflected back on that time and think through, okay, this is typically what happens 
when someone becomes a Christian, especially if you are rescued out of the kind of raucous lifestyle that I was living, you end up sort of going to the opposite extreme. And before you were trying to save yourself by breaking the rules, at least this was the case for me, I was trying to save myself and rescue myself by breaking the rules. If I can just, if I can just get rid of the rules and if I can just get rid of the boundaries and if I can just be set free to do whatever I want to do without anybody getting in the way, then I will finally find the freedom and fullness of life that I crave. Well, after God saved me for six months, let me say... For six months after I became a Christian, I could not hear about grace. I could not sing about grace. I could not talk about grace without weeping. I was so aware of the fact that I was, I was a great sinner, a big sinner, ill-deserving of any of God's favor. And the fact that God would so graciously descend to me and patiently hunt me down and adopt me into his family and give me an inheritance that was imperishable just blew my mind. I was the least deserving of the least deserving. And so for six months, maybe a year, I was just amazed by God's grace. But then something terrible happened to me. I started to get better. I actually started, I know that sounds crazy, I'll explain it in a minute, but I started to get better. One of the worst things that can happen to a Christian is the fact that they get better and they know it. You know, I stopped doing the bad things that I used to do, and I started doing good things. I stopped going to clubs and started going to Bible studies. I stopped hanging out with non-Christian people and started hanging out with Christian people. I started not doing the things that I used to do, and I started doing the things that I needed to do, and that in and of itself is a great thing. That's a great testimony, okay, that you begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, and I began running away from those things I used to run toward and run toward those things that I used to run away from, but I started to believe my own press. Wow, I'm actually improving. I'm getting better. Look at me. Look how clean I am making myself. I'm no longer like those dirty people over there, If they would just put in some hard work, and if they would just do the right thing and take God seriously, they could get clean like me, because that's what I've done. Well, you start believing your own press. You stop thinking of yourself as a great sinner in daily need of a delivering Savior, and you actually start believing that you're better than you are, the old... Presbyterian minister Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. (laughs) But God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ever hope for or imagine. And some people who go to church week in and week out stopped thinking of themselves as real sinners a long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah, we theologically and biblically, we affirm, of course I'm a sinner. Nobody's perfect. But they stopped feeling themselves to be sinners. They stopped feeling desperate for grace a long time ago. A long time ago. And so that was me. For the first six months or 12 months that I was a Christian, I knew how desperate I was. Not just with my mind, but I, I felt my desperation. I knew that if it were not for the amazing, condescending grace of God, I was in big trouble. Huge trouble. 
That I could go back, if God turned his back on me for one second, I could fall right back into what I was, regardless of all of the you know, guardrails and rules and regulations that I had set up. I knew that I was desperate. But then you start to get better, and you start to improve, and you stop doing the bad things, and you start doing the good things. Incidentally, you start redefining what's good and what's bad. And what ends up happening is we start defining what's good and what's bad just the way the Pharisees did. If I can do the right things on the outside, regardless of what's going on inside, I'm honoring God. I'm pleasing God. Well, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside. You spent all of your time cleaning yourself up on the outside and you remain dead on the inside. With your lips, you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. Well, many of us Christians tire ourselves out because we stopped believing two things. Number one, that we are great sinners. And number two, that Jesus is a great Savior. So we think this way. We needed Jesus a lot at the beginning of our Christian life. A lot. It was God's blood, sweat, and tears that got us in. Thanks be to God. But the Christian life is a progression away from needing Jesus a lot. So as I grow and as I develop and as I become a more mature Christian, I need Jesus less and less because I'm becoming less and less of a sinner. Well, that happens to the best of us. And we start thinking that um, the Christian life, growth in the Christian life is growth away from dependence and desperation rather than growth into dependence and desperation, which is the way Paul defined it. I'm the worst guy that I know. He says this at the end of his life. Okay, I'm the worst guy that I know. Here's a guy who, you know, planted numerous churches around the then known world, wrote half the Bible. Okay, God used him to write half the Bible. And at the end of his life, I mean, think the Apostle Paul we're talking about here, okay? We're not talking about just some schmo. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, all right? So you've got, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you've got, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Paul, all right? And then, you know, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, all right? Um... So, I mean, you're talking about the Apostle Paul, super saint, Apostle Paul. And at the end of his life, he's able to say, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the worst guy that I know. I'm the worst of the worst. See, Christian growth is always growth into grace, not away from it. It's always growth downward, not upward. We are so American in our understanding of Christian growth. And what it's supposed to look like. We, we have long ago substituted the cross for a ladder. When it comes to what defines the Christian life. And what defines the life of grace. I love the way Robert Capon defines the life of grace. Robert Capon who is a minister who is now dead. Defined it this way. The life of grace is the life of a cripple on an escalator. It's a beautiful picture to me. The moment you stop thinking of yourself as a spiritual cripple, Jesus will start to impress you less and less and less. And then you take your eyes off of Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, and you start, you know, you start fixing your eyes on other things, good things. 
but not ultimate things. Well, all of these things happen to us and we exhaust ourselves. And it begs the question, where does this exhaustion come from? Because oftentimes we think that exhaustion in our lives comes from things and people outside of us. You know, difficult circumstances, difficult people. Get rid of these circumstances, get rid of these people, or just let me get away from these things and my exhaustion will go away. Where does our exhaustion come from? Uh, What I want to suggest this morning is that what primarily causes our exhaustion has nothing to do with anything outside of us and has everything to do with what's going on inside of us. Where does our exhaustion come from? Let me just unpack that. Let me try to answer that for a second. And then I want to just, you know, instead of looking at what's the cause, which we're going to look at here, what's the cure for this exhaustion? Because we're tired. Okay. Um, So where does it come from? Robert Capon, again, uh, said this, and I think he's really on to something. He was on to something. He said, the greatest temptation is to think that by further, better, more aggressive living, we can have life. In other words, he's describing our self-salvation projects. He's describing the way that all of us live. If we can just work harder and work smarter, if we can just raise our kids right, if we can simply improve our marriage, if we can just land this deal, if we can just impress our coworkers, if we can just look a certain way, if we can garner a certain reputation, if we can just do these things, if we can just accomplish these things, whatever these things may be that promise life to us, If we can just do these things, we'll find life, we'll find freedom, we'll find happiness. What Capon is saying is that the reason we're so tired isn't simply because our children are difficult or that life is busy or that the demands at work keep piling up. The reason we're so tired is that we're trying to save ourselves. Now, I'm not just talking about people outside the church, okay, because that's typically what we think. We think, when we think about the gospel, at least this is what I thought growing up, when I heard the word gospel... This is what I thought. The gospel is for the people outside the church. It was synonymous with evangelism only. Non-Christians need the gospel. But once God saves us, once God saves us, he then moves us beyond the gospel into something different, into something deeper. In other words, the gospel is like the ABCs of the Christian faith. That's what I grew up thinking. But then you begin to read the Bible and you discover that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith, and that once God saves you, he doesn't then move you beyond the gospel into something different, he moves you deeper into the gospel, and that we never, ever, ever, ever outgrow our need to hear, it is finished. Ever. You never outgrow that need. It is finished. The people in our church uh, know that they're going to get the same sermon every single Sunday from a different passage. The same sermon. Okay? And that's the what it's, I mean, that's what preachers are supposed to do. They are supposed to preach the same sermon from every passage in the Bible. Every passage in the Bible. Paul did it. I mean, all of his letters may address some different issues at different times, but he is intent in every letter he writes to basically trumpet one thing. Christ and him crucified for sinners like us, okay? Um, And so uh, we never, ever, ever outgrow our need to hear it is finished, which means that it's not just the people out there 
who are addicted to self-salvation projects, self-rescue missions. It's the people in here. It's me. It's you. You and I are constantly looking to things and to people that are infinitely smaller than Jesus to deliver to us those things that only Jesus has promised to deliver. Meaning and purpose and satisfaction and peace and value and worth and all of those things. We are constantly leaning into things that are infinitely smaller than Jesus to give to us what only Jesus can give. So let me just introduce you to a word that I made up, but you can make up words if you define them. Okay, so I'm going to make this word up. I made this word up, but I'll define it for you. That's legit. All right, you can do that. That's within the rules. Every single one of you, including me, is addicted to what I call performancism. Every single one of us, whether you realize it or not. For some, that's a revelation. You're like, no, that's not me. It is, trust me, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It is. You're a human, and you're a broken human, so you're addicted to performancism. Others of you know that to be true. You know you're worn out. I mean, you're just, you're, you're worn out. You know it. Um, performancism is the mindset that equates our identity and our value directly with our performance. So, how I look, how intelligent I am, how my kids turn out, what people think of me is synonymous with my worth. So, in the world of performancism, success equals life. And failure equals death. That's the way you and I are naturally wired. Now, I grew up, because I grew up in Florida, I grew up playing tennis. And being the middle of seven children, my brothers and sisters, all of my brothers and sisters were better than me at lots of stuff. But I was better than all of them at one thing, playing tennis. I got my first tennis racket when I was seven years old. Uh, because I, we had such a big family, my parents had to buy a big house, and behind that big house was a tennis court. And so I grew up on the tennis court, played. By the time I was 10, 11 years old, uh, I was playing competitively, and I was constantly hearing from people, constantly hearing from people, you can really go places with tennis. I mean, you're like a young phenom. You can really do something. You can really go somewhere. And I loved, of course, when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, you love hearing that kind of thing. It's a Affirming, it's encouraging, you feel valuable, you feel worthy, and all of those things. Um, but I had a significant problem, one major problem. Every single time I lost a point, a game, uh, a set, or a match, I would throw a John McEnroe like temper tantrum every time. I mean, I would smash my rackets, I would cuss, I would spit. I mean, I just couldn't control myself. And my parents and my coaches would constantly be pulling me aside and saying, relax, man. I mean, you got to get a hold of yourself. I can remember distinctly my father pulling me aside and saying, you've got to, and he was a psychologist from Europe, so he had all of the, you know, qualifications to figure out how to calm me down. He couldn't do it, but he would, I remember him pulling me aside going, you know, you've got to calm down. You've, you've just got to relax. It's not that big of a deal, and I really tried. I promise you, I tried. I tried to control my temper. I tried not to get so upset. And I just couldn't. And I couldn't figure out then what I know now regarding why I would get so bent out of shape when I would lose a point. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. A game, a set, a match. Why was I incapable of enduring loss? 
Well, what I know now is that for me, because I had begun to locate my worth and my value and my identity in the way that I played tennis because of all of the affirmation I was getting, every lost point, every lost game, every lost set and match threatened my identity. I had come to believe about me fundamentally that I was a tennis player and I was a good tennis player. So when I would lose, I would in that moment undergo an identity crisis. Who am I if I'm not good? Who am I? I mean, I concluded that if I didn't become the best, I'd be a nobody. If I didn't win, I didn't count. Now, that may not be the case for you regarding tennis, but that is the case for you regarding lots of other things, I'm sure. Your children. I mean, how your kids turn out. Um, what other people think of you, how you look, your reputation, your success or lack thereof. There are a thousand places where we seek to locate our identity, where we try to garner worth and value that are smaller than Jesus, and we, we perform for that. Our value, our identity is anchored in our performance. I mean, think about it. The musts of life are many, and we all feel their force. Infomercials promising a better life if you work at getting a better body. A beautiful person, the success of your coworker, your best friend's good marriage. All of these things have the potential to communicate you're not measuring up. I mean, literally, for different people, it's different things. But I know some people, women specifically, it's hard for them to check out at the grocery store or see a bulletin. I'm not a bullet. What do they call those things? Billboard. It's church. I'm thinking bulletin. Billboard down because of beautiful women because it may it just without the magazine cover or the billboard even being able to speak, just seeing it communicates you're not enough. When, when a coworker gets a promotion, something you should celebrate, just the coworker's promotion has the capacity to communicate. You're not measuring up. You're not, you're not cutting it. I mean, if you struggle in your marriage and you have friends that don't seem to struggle in their marriage, newsflash, they are, okay? <laughs> They're just putting on a good show in front of you, but they are, okay? Um, if you have If you're struggling in your marriage and you feel like throwing in the towel and you're around people whose marriage seems good, doesn't their good marriage just simply communicate or tend to communicate? You're not cutting it. You better put on a good face because if they find out that you are as messed up as you are, they'll run for the hills, okay? Um, I mean, all of these things have the potential to communicate you're not measuring up. We all feel the stress to secure a sense of significance, to be approved, to be validated, loved, and we conclude that if we're going to experience these things, we have to make it happen. It's on us. And when we feel like we're not cutting it, we slip into self-salvation. Trying to appease the judge, whether the judge be friends Parents, spouse, ourselves, we try to appease the judge with hard work and good behavior and success and losing weight and on and on it goes. So we're exhausted because we're trying to save ourselves by generating our own value and significance and meaning and security by what we do and by who we can become. We're weary because we're desperately trying to win the approval and affection of others. If we're going to matter, we have to get people to think a certain way of us. That's the way most of us think. Facebook is 
probably the best outlet for this, all right? Because no one's ever unhappy on Facebook. Every, if you look at Facebook, everyone's got the perfect life, okay? And here's a perfect example. If you're a young couple and you've got three small kids, as my wife and I were uh, a number of years back now, our oldest now is 19. We have a 19-year-old boy, 17-year-old boy, and an almost 13-year-old girl. And my wife and I are still unbelievably young, all right? So the goal has always been have them quickly, get them out of the house quickly, um, that's been my goal. She always gets upset when I say that. She's like, honey, you're going to miss them when they're gone. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> Jenna, I will miss. All right. But the boys need to go sort of make their own way, you know. Um, but um, but if, you were, uh, if you are a young couple and you have small kids, you'll know what I'm talking about, okay? You, you, um, when it comes to Facebook, you Saturday morning... Uh, your wife decides that you haven't been spending enough family time together. Two of the words that scare me more than any other words ever, family time, okay? If you don't have enough family time together, let's go to the park for the day. Uh, you sort of begrudgingly, ah, okay, it's a lot of work. You got to get the kids ready. You know, they, they, you got to get them blah, 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 blah. You got to pack a lunch. You gotta, I mean, just a lot of work that goes into family time, all right? Uh, and so you finally make, you get them in the minivan, you make your way to the park, you go, you know, within five minutes of you being there, all the kids are fighting, okay? I mean, they're screaming, they're crying, uh, one hit another one, one dropped their sandwich in the sand. I mean, it's just a disaster. The wife is thinking, you know, we wouldn't have to do this kind of thing if you were around the house more. And the husband's thinking, listen, this is your stupid idea in the first place. We shouldn't even be here. I mean, within 30 minutes, everybody can't stand each other. But before you leave, you gather everybody together, okay? And you ask some guy at the park, can you please snap a picture of us? And you pinch the kids as hard as you can just to get them to smile for two seconds. And everyone smiles for two seconds before they rip everybody's head off. And you take that picture, you go home, you upload to Facebook, and you say, wonderful family time at the park today. <laughs> Okay? I mean, this is what people do. I know. We've done that. All right? Um, well, why do we do that? I mean, it's a silly illustration, but why do we do that? There is something down deep inside of us that has to present ourselves in such a way to the outside world, an untrue version of ourselves or at the very least, a half-true version of ourselves to the world. Because if we are not thought of a certain way, we don't feel like we matter. We've located our identity in the impressions we leave with other people. Which is why the comedian Chris Rock says, when people meet you for the first time, they're not meeting you, they're meeting your representative. <laughs> which is true. And there is perhaps no place more so than the church where people wear masks and pretend one of the great things the gospel allows you to do because it tells you that your worth and your value and your identity and your security is located in what Jesus has done and not what you do. It frees you to take off your masks. It frees you to not pretend anymore. Pretending is exhausting. Changing your masks is exhausting. Trying to convey that you're better than you are is exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And the reason we do that is because we're trying... We're trying so desperately to save ourselves. We feel the burden to make it, to get it done, to impress, to earn, to succeed because our very identity is at stake. So if the cause of our exhaustion is the drive to save ourselves, what's the cure? Give me good news, for goodness sake. I've just spent 30 minutes telling you that you're all in big trouble, okay? 
including me, that we're all more, way more messed up than we think we are. Well, is there good news? And yes, there is good news, and Jesus gives it to us here, because within the prison of these ruthless musts, Jesus makes a stunning declaration. He says, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to set the captives free. He, he stands up in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll to read, and he goes to that place in Isaiah where hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah, the prophet, is prophesying about the coming Redeemer, the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God said to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Old Testament is a development of that initial promise. And that promise, the promise itself doesn't get bigger, but the development of that promise gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where the fulfillment of that promise is introduced in the person of Jesus. But hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah says, this This is the job description of the one who's coming. You want to know what Jesus' job description is? What he's on mission to accomplish? Here it is. And so Jesus, Jesus finds this place in Isaiah and he reads this and he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the guy that Isaiah was talking about. Years and years and years ago and the people in Nazareth, they can't believe it. Isn't this, I mean, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Who does this guy think he is? Talk about a guy with a God complex. Who does this guy think he is? God? You know? So Jesus makes this stunning declaration inside the the exhaustion of our lives. Jesus makes this stunning declaration, I've come to set the captives free. Well, it begs the question, free from what? The Sunday school answer is, well, free from sin and death. Of course. But what does that mean? What does being free from sin and death feel like and smell like and taste like when you are living inside the stress and tension and anxiety of everyday life? Well, we're free from the slavery of having to rescue ourselves. We're free from the pressure of having to make it on our own. We're free from the demand to measure up. We're free from the burden to get it all right. We're free from the obligation to fix ourselves and other people. So many of us are tired because we're trying to fix other people. Lots of fixing goes on inside the church. You know, if anybody comes to you and says, God has put me on this earth to fix you, run, okay, run. No one wants to be around a fixer, right? Husbands, wives, am I right? I mean, do you feel closest to your spouse when they are in fix-you mode? No one does. You're lying if you say, well, but it's what I need to hear. You don't want to hear it, okay? Um, Incidentally, here's a little parenthetical comment. Um, You know, every single attempt on our part to fix someone else is a subtle attempt to fix ourselves. What we're saying in that moment is I need you to become a certain way if I'm going to be happy. Another self-salvation project. These things are subtle. But Jesus said, I've come to set you free from that. He came to relieve us of the burden that we feel to win, to get ahead, to be on top of everything. He came to set us free from the pressure to be right and regarded and respected. Because Jesus came to set the captives free. Life doesn't have to be a tireless effort to save ourselves by striving to be the best and the most beautiful and the most accomplished. We don't have to live under the weight of making all of our dreams come true if we're going to matter. 
Those are the kinds of things Jesus came to set us free from. The gospel of grace announces that Jesus came to satisfy the deep judgment against us once and for all so that we could be free from the judgment of God, from the judgment of others, from the judgment of ourselves. The verdict is in, paid in full. I mean, think about it. I, I can say, I can't speak, well, I can speak about you this way because our hearts are all not that different. I'm not the Christian that I ought to be, nor am I the father, husband, pastor, or friend that I should be. I mean, I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. You ever find it hard sometimes to sing songs in church where you're talking about fully consecrating yourself to thee? I mean, I'm like, I I, I sing it because I, I believe it. But I go, this doesn't describe me. I haven't been fully consecrated to God for one second of my life. I'm a sinner. I mean, I wish 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Who does that? I mean, I'm not kidding. Who does that? Can you honestly say that there has been a moment in your life where whether you have eaten, drinking, that's not even a word, uh, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all, all of it. Not part of it, not just on the outside, all of it. To the glory of God. I mean, if you're a Christian, you want to be able to say that. Your heart longs to be able to do that. I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. That's the gospel. I wish I could say that Jesus fully satisfies me. I mean, I I wish I could say that. I remember... um, Real quick, I remember talking to a Baptist, Baptist, okay, I have lots of Baptist friends. They're way more fun to hang out with than Presbyterians most of the time. Um, I was hanging out with a Baptist friend of mine who looked at me and said, brother, you always know you're talking to a Baptist when they call you brother, always. We, we Presbyterians don't talk that way because we're not sure you are a brother, you know? You may or may not be one of the elect, you know? Who knows? God knows. I, maybe you're a brother, maybe you're not. So we just don't use that term, you know? Um, so he says, you know, brother, Jesus fully satisfies me. And I looked at him and I said, no, he doesn't. And he looked at me like I had said something offensive and it, maybe it was, but I was just like, Jesus doesn't fully satisfy you. I mean, he doesn't fully satisfy me. I wish I could say that Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't, neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. That's the gospel. I wish I could say, I surrender all to Jesus. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus surrendered all for me. That's what I can say. That's the gospel. That's good news. Good news that I perpetually need to hear. You see, the gospel doxologically declares that because of Christ's finished work for you, you already have all of the approval, all of the security, all of the love, all of the worth, and all of the rescue that you long for and that you look for in a thousand things and people infinitely smaller than Jesus. And this means that you don't have to change your spouse to matter. You don't have to fix your kids to secure your own worth. You don't have to be beautiful to justify your existence. The gospel is good news to exhausted people who have been crushed by the unmet expectations of life. So it announces that because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus was strong for me, I'm free to be weak. 
Because Jesus was someone, I'm free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I'm free to be ordinary. And what that means is that the gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. So here's the good news. Who you really are has nothing to do with you. It's the difference between Jesus and Aristotle, if you're interested in that kind of thing. I was a philosophy major in college, so I'm interested in that kind of thing. Aristotle's ethics, Aristotelian ethics, was basically this, can be summed up in this. You are what you do. Jesus, on the other hand, announces, you are not what you do, you are what I have done for you. Big difference when it comes to, when it comes to defining identity. So here's the good news. Who you are has nothing to do with you. How much you can accomplish, who you can become, your behavior, good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your past, your present, your future, your family background, your education, your looks, your identity. Listen to me, Christian, this is good news. Your identity is firmly anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. You are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. That is the only cure for exhaustion. Let me close with this. Uh, This is a couple years ago now. Uh, Twice in the course of one year, I was late for a meeting, late for an appointment, and couldn't find my car keys. And so I was frantically searching the house for my car keys, looking all over the place for my car keys. Um, And I started blaming everybody in my house. I blamed my wife. I blamed my kids. I blamed the animals in my house. Uh, We have all sorts of animals in my house. Um, My wife is like Dr. Doolittle. It's unbelievable. They just arrive uh, at our house. I swore that I would never have an animal live inside our home, ever. Uh, we have now a long-haired dachshund that sleeps in our bed every night. Every night. It's disgusting. I mean, I, I love Ella. Ella's her name, and I love her. We miss her. She's not here with us. But, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even let my children sleep in my bed when they were small. And now I'm getting soft in my old age, and uh, my wife needs something apparently a little bit more furry to cuddle up with than me. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, we have lots and lots of animals in our house. I can't find my keys. I'm blaming everything, okay? Kim, have you seen my keys? No, I haven't. Uh, you know, Gabe, have you seen my keys? You take my keys? No. Nate, have you seen my No, no, no. Jenna, sweetie, <laughs> have you seen my keys? No, Daddy, I haven't. I'm like, you're the only one I believe. The rest are liars. <laughs> Sweetheart. Um, then I think maybe Thomas, who at the time was our... 650-pound shih tzu, uh, who was so fat his belly dragged on the ground, causing sores that would open, and there would be blood streaks on the ground. Thomas died. I don't, we cry. I cried for about five seconds. Um, And, you know, maybe Thomas ate the keys. Thomas, you eat the keys? Couldn't find them anywhere. But on both occasions, I promise you, on both occasions, I went to my bedroom one last time to look for my car keys, stuck my hand in my pocket, and they were there. Both times. Both times. And every time I tell that story, people laugh and go, what kind of moron frantically searches his home or looks for something that he already has in his pocket? Well, me, for one. Um, I've also done the same thing with sunglasses, incidentally, on top of my head, looking and looking and looking and then look in the mirror and they're on top of my head. Uh, but you do the same thing. You see, every single one of us frantically searches behind every tree and under every rock 
for something that we already possess. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news, is God's inexhaustible shout to exhausted people that the keys are in your pocket. They're in your pocket. All the value, worth, security, significance, affection, approval, all of those things that you long for and that you frantically spend your life looking for are yours in Christ. The keys are in your pocket. So that internal voice, and you'll hear it today, when you hear that internal voice that is constantly whispering, do this and live, just do it a little bit more, just know that that voice can only be silenced by that external voice which constantly shouts, it is finished. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would massage this good news down deep into our bones and that as a result, we would leave here today knowing something of the freedom, the deep freedom that you so sacrificially purchased for sinners like us. Help us to know and to believe that the pressure is off and that if we are in Christ, we live our lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The gospel does change everything when you begin to understand that. Many of you, we know, have understood the gospel. There may be some here who have never. Um, this may be the first time where they've heard the gospel. Really what Jesus Christ has done, that he has done everything that you could not do to satisfy what God demanded of us. And so I would just encourage you, if you have questions, if you maybe feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you and drawing you and saying, this is what I've done for you, we encourage you to come talk to us. Um, after the service, both of us will be available. Telling will be available. If you have questions of what it means to be a Christian, maybe you want to give your life. Maybe you had some things you're struggling with. We are available. We want um, to be available just to talk with you. This is what it means to be a church body. And so if you don't have a church that you're plugged into, this is what we're supposed to preach is the gospel because we need to hear it. Listen, this is a hard truth for us to believe because I know in my life, and recently, um, when we went to this conference, one of the things that Tullian spoke about is that God is not well-pleased in a future version of me, one where I'm a little better than I am today. And that was something that I need to continually hear these truths, the truths of the Word of God that says Jesus Christ has satisfied what God demanded from us that we could never do on our own. That's why we're called together in the church. That's why there's preaching. That's why there's teaching. That's why you have brothers and sisters around you so we can encourage one another. So we would invite you to become part of the body here if you're not already. If you have any questions for us, we would love to meet with you. Would you stand? And I want to pray us out. And I encourage you, meet somebody on your way out. There's a lot of people around. If you're a member here and this is your home, look for those who maybe you've never seen before. Build some, con or build some uh, just relationships. And I would just encourage you to do that. We all need one another. We are broken. Our marriages are broken. We need one another. Let's pray. God, we do give you praise for who you are. God, we thank you for drawing us together as a body, broken, every single one of us, broken, struggling with things. God, help us to, 
to be real with one another. Help us to be real with our struggles. It is the greatest of news when we admit our defeat and we admit that we don't have it all together and we understand the truth that you do and that you've given us those things to believe in, that we can rest and rely in that, that that word can dwell in us richly. God, it changes everything in our lives. God, we give you praise for your son Jesus Christ, for his death, burial, and resurrection, and for the blood that has not just covered our sins, but it has washed them away. God, we thank you for the message we've heard today. May it sit deeply within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.